Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Patricia Gerovici. Patricia Gerovici is a psychoanalyst, analytic supervisor, and the recipient of the 2020 Sigourney Award for her clinical and scholarly work with Latinx and gender variant communities. Her single authored books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome winner of the Gradiva Award and the Boyer Prize, Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, and The Transgender Psychoanalysis, a Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference. She edited with Chris Christian, Psychoanalysis in the Barrios, Race, Class, and the Unconscious, which was the winner of the Gradiva Award for Best Edited Collection and the American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis Book Prize. She also edited with Manya Steinkohler, Lacan on Madness, Madness, Yes, You Can't, and Lacan, Psychoanalysis and Comedy, and most recently, Psychoanalysis, Gender and Sexualities, From Feminism to Trans. Dr. Garovici will discuss today psychoanalytic perspectives on perversion, and will extend these ideas to thinking about tech-mediated sexuality, porn, and its impact on us for the better or worse. Welcome to the show, Dr. Garovici. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Nicole. Wonderful. So perversion is a word that psychoanalysts have used historically to describe a particular relationship to sexuality and to other people, kind of a type of relating. Lacanian psychoanalysts have a particular way of thinking about perversion. Maybe we can start with your ideas about what perversion is and what it isn't and how it relates to sexuality and relationships as you understand it. Yes, it's a complicated word because uh, in our everyday use the word perversion is quite loaded and uh, and one thing that uh, one learns as a psychoanalyst is uh, to to suspend any judgment i think one of the fundamental rules to invite somebody to speak up in the session is to say whatever comes to mind and that necessarily <laughs> implies uh, that there is no censorship and that there is no judgment. Uh, we ask that from from the analysis, so they can speak freely. But it's also a rule that operates for the analyst. So um, I, I have at times uh, some hesitation with using the word perversion because it's a word that is very loaded and it has a sort of moralistic connotation. Uh, we could use it, and maybe this is uh, perhaps maybe Adelie should revise our terminology and come up with another word to maybe explain a form of psychic structure without trying to impose any moral weight to the word perversion. And and in that sense, we could use perversion to think of a, a certain type of psychic 
structure that does not necessarily imply a better or, or bad behavior or a better or worse moral standing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if we had such a word that didn't have the, the weight of moral judgment or any of that, what would we describe, you know, as this kind of a structure? Just, just if we could kind of describe that piece. Yeah, tra- traditionally within, already Freud, in a way, played with the word perversion that had been uh, borrowed from the medical and also juridical discourse. And when he, very early in the 20th century, I'm referring to 1905, when he he wrote the, the three essays on sexuality, he defined human sexuality as uh, perverse. Because he noted that uh, our, our sexual activity may at times be oriented to, to, to procreation, if that's the aim of sexuality. Is it reproduction? That may be the, the, the question. Can, can sexuality be defined as a reproductive? And then if sexuality moves away from that goal, could then call do we call it perverse? So in that sense, a... Uh, Freud notes that, uh, in general, human sexuality is, uh, by definition, polymorphous and perverse. If the if the aim would be reproduction, why would we kiss? Or, or at times we're happy just kissing, and 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 that would be is not necessarily a, a biological function leading to this aim. That in human sexuality there is something, and that's what brought the first uh, patients to, to uh, Freud's uh, consultation, even before he uh, became himself a psychoanalyst, even before he invented psychoanalysis, that sexuality operated for human beings in mysterious ways and in conflictive ways. And when he talked about human sexuality, he in a way, by defining all type of, of uh, human sexuality as perverse, in a way makes of reproduction a deviation from perversion. Because if the norm is deviation, then when we have sexual reproduction, would be sort of distortion of a, a mode of sexuality that is, in a way, define any attempt at imposing an, a norm. And and that I think is a is a liberating gesture that unhappily, and we could talk about that, was forgotten by many post-Freudian analysts and even by by contemporary analysts of Freud. And today we may be imagining that the psychoanalytic practice has to do with trying to impose a model of uh, normal normalcy or health. That in fact, if if we look at this early from psychoanalytic writing, had a much freer, freer spirit that defies any attempt at normalizing. So perversion then, if we dare to use the word, would be, according to the Freudian-Lacanian tradition, a form of psychic structure that has a problematic relation to what in psychoanalysis is considered a big a big problem without any clear answer, which is the question of sexual difference. That for the unconscious, uh, figuring out 
how to be in this sexual body is is a big problem for which we don't have a clear answer. And uh, the solution of uh, someone with a perverse structure will be very different from the solution uh, found by somebody with a neurotic structure from the solution found by somebody with a psychotic structure. But I, I, I would use the word perversion with caution to take distance from, from any moral weight or any temptation at pathologizing. Because one thing that unhappily is a sad reality of the history of psychoanalysis is a history of pathologization of any non-normative expression of gender and sexuality. So I try to, to use it with caution if we don't ascribe to it a, a moral value. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm hearing in, in what you're saying a very contemporary view, and you've written a ton about gender and about sexuality and sexual difference in a very um, supportive and creative way. I'm thinking about perversion in another way, too. Something about perverse relationships where people are treated as objects and that there's no consent, for example, which independent of sexual acts or gender expression or gender identity which I have no moral judgment about, but consent seems to be something that can be really problematic if people aren't consenting to a particular act or two people aren't regarded as subjects or three people or five people or however many people are involved aren't regarded as full subjects um, with their capacity to consent. And I guess I, I wonder what you think about that idea, that maybe perversion could be understood as perverse relating rather than particular sex acts or particular identities or particular behavior. Absolutely. I think here the difficulty we have is that we would be then discussing an issue from, say, a juridical perspective. The advantage we have, when I was saying earlier as a psychoanalyst, is that in a way we take reality and fantasy at the same value, whatever the analysis brings to the session will be treated with the same truth value. I think what is important, I think, in our practice is not so much what's good or what's uh, wrong, but the issues around truth. The, and at times people suffer because they lie to themselves. And maybe, going back to what you were uh, saying, indeed, they may consent to be in a relationship they don't want to be, or they may accept to do certain things they actually don't want. In a way, they may be alienated from themselves, from their truth, from their desires. And that uh, that would be indeed a, a problem that we could address. I think that indeed issues of uh, consent in relationship need to be taken into account, but in a way exceed the area we discuss when we work clinically, with an analysis and that, uh, of course, we, we have as practitioners, we have constraints that if if somebody's life is at risk or the life of someone else, we we have to report it and we will, we will. But that in a way we will treat dream life, fantasy, without passing any judgment to allow for subjective truth to, to be revealed, because indeed the uh, uh, notions of normality, abnormality, of uh, right or wrong, at times could, but maybe somebody who may lead a very 
seemingly good life from an, an external perspective may be uh, satisfying a very cruel wish by uh, maybe leading an exemplary life from the societal perspective. And, and that would be something that in a clinical context, in the truth revealed in psychoanalysis, will come through and maybe they will know they will be maybe more in uh, in consent with themselves and less alienated from themselves and and indeed I, I think those are important issues and been I think need to be dealt with from the perspective I would say of a citizen but they may exceed or or not be relevant in the uh, clinical context. And, and the example of, of Freud's cases of the rat man was someone who came to see Freud. He was very concerned that if he was going to marry the lady of his thoughts, his father could die. But his father had been dead for years at the time. So there is something about psychic reality that in a way allow us to take distance and suspend any any judgment so in that sense we we have that it's an advantage that could from the say juridical perspective play at this disadvantage but has a clinical function we need to take whatever the analysis tell us as face value let it play in the treatment and and we don't need to intervene as we might as citizens as a as we may have an opinion in the world that we may need to be called to intervene politically, but we may have the possibility of uh, let the, the, the psychic truth express itself, bracketing off social constructions that at times could could marginalize someone. Whoever they are or uh, whatever behavior they, or whatever fantasies they have, Medify this the social canon. Wow! So I'm really thinking about just how free the analyst has to be in their own mind to be able to open up that kind of a space, and how special and and precious it really is because it's unique compared to any other space, socially or otherwise, professionally or otherwise. Yeah, indeed. What you're saying makes me think that the the I was uh, thinking of the etymology of the word perversion is to turn around. Uh huh. And that maybe in that sense, psychoanalysis is a little perverse. <laughs> yes, yes, it turns around the the the, the rules of a, uh, say of social life of a, uh, how do you behave in society. Imagine if somebody in any social situation would allow themselves to say whatever comes to mind. They would likely be in trouble. But in analysis, we invite someone to say, say whatever comes to mind, disregarding whether or not it's offensive, whether or not it's uh, something you may feel ashamed of, or maybe something uh, you rather not talk about. So that in a way, indeed, there is perhaps, and, and to play with this idea of perversion, something a little pervert in, in the sense of we turn around societal laws of a good, polite society behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is really fascinating. So I, I've been thinking a lot about porn. And um, this comes from a couple of different streams. I'm a sex therapist in addition to training as a candidate in psychoanalysis. And I started a sex therapy training program at a university where I'm a professor. 
and through that work and through that thinking, I've had a lot of exposure to people who have what they refer to as porn addictions or internet addictions or some crossover of both. And in my clinical work, I've also seen many cases where people are starting to talk about their behaviors, their fantasies, their, their experiences, and their, their conflicts around the use of porn. And then I'm thinking about myself. I have a history before the internet. You know, I can remember time before the internet, which is not the case for all of, you know, all of young people, for example. And at that time, porn was largely, you know, magazines, paper, you know, or VHS tapes or these kinds of things where you'd have to go to a store and rent it. Like porn was not so easily accessible. You couldn't get it uh, on your phone so easily. It wasn't portable. It wasn't available all the time. And now there are cases where kids on schoolyards, for example, before they've even gone through puberty are looking at porn during lunch. There are situations where people are watching porn at work. I heard once a statistic in the 90s that approximately half of all internet traffic is related to sexuality, porn, dating sites, and the like. Some of my patients are complaining they can't get aroused anymore without it. And many compare the sex that they're having to the sex they see in porn and say, you know, it's not the same. It's not as good. Some people are also experiencing really positive scenarios where they're seeing different kinds of bodies or more positive uh, representations of bodies in porn, or they feel like it's really useful for enhancing their experience with their partners, or they feel like they get instructional videos that make them more confident or something. I'm wondering what you think about the use of porn, about sexuality, about the role of porn and its impact on our minds and our experiences, and whether or not the internet is perhaps causing us to be, I don't know, more problematic in our relationships and in our sexual relationships? I would say that what you are describing, what is maybe something a little concerning, and, and we see that mostly with adolescents, is uh, the effect that uh, the internet has in terms of a, a certain lack of mediation or lack of metaphor. Uh, I was wondering in the way you were describing it, if perhaps are we using less our imagination when we have maybe an image that is too explicit and, and maybe then we lose the capacity to dream, they dream, imagine, project, it's, it's too, too concrete. That perhaps that's a, a danger and at times also the, the problem that, that I think is, is a concern with the, the internet. We see it in, in how people could, could allow themselves to be extremely aggressive in, in, in comments they leave online, that, that there is a, a lack of filter in a way and, and that they would never be aggressive in the same intensity if they were interacting with the person they're interacting online, if they would be interacting face-to-face. -face. So that, in a way, the, the internet allows for a display of aggression that I think is there from the start, but that makes the filter less weaker, in a way. <laughs> so that's a concern. And, and, when, and I would Focusing something you said, and, and uh, I don't have extensive clinical experience on sexual addiction, but I do on addictions in general. And the fact that you are working with analysts who describe their relationship to internet porn as addictive, then it's a different kind of promise. Is it then the object 
or is it the way we relate to the object? And that would be the question is, is the accessibility the problem? It is the object itself. And uh, I don't have clear, clear answers about how is uh, maybe our, our contemporary sexuality changed by having accessibility to maybe a much higher distribution of, of, of porn than maybe before the internet. But what I would say, maybe I said this, perhaps to keep things in perspective, if we go back to, to Freud, he's writing in 1905 already, uh, before, well, before the internet, but when, of course, there were probably, there was pornography circulating, there were many Victorian preoccupations about other types of, of, of uh, pornographic production, that sexuality has always been for those uh, human beings, speaking beings, always problematic and always conflictive. So I would not be so worried about the present time in terms of uh, is the, I would say that sexuality is has always been a problem that is not worse off now than it was before. I think that it is is not there is nothing new under the sun in terms of. The fact that, for instance, animals seem to know very well what to do. They follow at times seasons. They don't need uh, to be taught what they can rely on instinct. For us, speaking being, we need to be taught the, the stories about birds and uh, the bees. And we need to be given sex ed to, to be taught what we should know already. So I would say that for human beings, sexuality has always been problematic and it's so difficult to um, decide what is the limit. When does, for instance, if, if pornography is used in the context of, if we take an example to, to pull out the, what is considered the norm in a heteronormative a society, a married couple, a man and a woman who may watch once in a while a little porn to um, enhance their sexual life or explore their erotic uh, fantasies. And that would be considered fine. But if somebody may uh, then spend many hours watching porn or could only have sex, if they watch porn or a certain specific type of porn, it's very hard to decide. When, when, when do we draw the line of a specific amount of hours? I don't know, maybe you have other, other thoughts. I think what you're talking about is uh, the, the thing you brought up at the beginning of this a little bit earlier about people's fantasy life and their imagination kind of being inaccessible to them. What I see that troubles me is not the number of hours or the whether or not it's, you know, enhancing a relationship or not, what it's troublesome to me when there are very young people who can no longer get aroused. That seems troublesome to me where they need ever increasing amounts or intensity of, of pornographic images to get aroused. That seems sad because they're losing sensitivity and then their world seems to be shrinking and it's very frustrating for them. And these are young, healthy people who otherwise don't have problems with sexuality. And the other thing that seems problematic to me, well, and, and children on schoolyards where they are suddenly confronted with it, it's more like the primal scene, but they get it all in one dose and kind of in this very specific way where porn is not terribly realistic always. 
and what they understand is too much too soon and they can't unsee it. I think that's problematic. But I also think that there's something about this fantasy life that people seem to be, the internet delivers on demand so quickly that they seem to be unable to fantasize and remember. I, I caught myself the other day, I was remembering someone's cologne and I actually had the thought, this is a very strange thought, I had the thought, I'm going to Google the scent of that cologne. Of course, you can't call up a scent on Google. That's crazy, right? And I, I sort of laughed and I thought, okay, how funny that would be if Google, you could actually call up scents and have them, you know, spray out of your computer or something so that you could, you could recall them. But it actually is, is sort of more disturbing. I had the idea that I would look up something from memory rather than just fantasize about it or think about it. And I think that's what's happening more and more is that people think they think something and they close the gap that would ordinarily be daydreaming, fantasizing, et cetera, expanding on it. They close that gap by looking it up and by, by trying to get some facsimile of it in the internet. And I think that's what porn's doing now. And that's, that I think is a serious problem because what happens if we don't practice or allow space for our imagination? I think it uh, atrophies. But maybe it can be it can be uh, brought back, you know, to life. I'm not sure. Yeah, that in a way maybe we we haven't fully lost our sense of smell too. Because indeed, that's another thing that Freud says that that humans stood up on their feet and and took too much distance from the ground and lost the the ability to smell. That if you compare with how much a dog can perceive, we we lost some of our capacities. But still, and I, I like a lot your your image of the smell. That is uh, something that not yet, at least, a computer can deliver. Maybe in the future, there have been some experiments in in trying to to have movie theaters also delivering a, a, an olfactory experience. You will have smells while watching a film. And, and apparently the technology is not there yet or it would be too costly to, to do. But in a way that perhaps it would be important to how could we make use of uh, all the, the comfort and advancement that technology grants us without maybe losing ourselves in it. I think this is what, what you're trying to say, that I would trust, however, human discontent to challenge that. I think that there is always the capacity to make a symptom. The fact that somebody then comes to see us and tell us, I have an addiction, that something there is, there is a short circuit always, that I, I, I trust the, the human capacity for discontent and, the, and, and that eventually, a fuse will blow, and 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 they will they will ask themselves, well, w w am I missing on something? That indeed you're you're describing a situation that that indeed is concerning, but that the capacity, human capacity to to produce symptoms, and and here I'm talking about symptoms, trying to to move away from the medical model is a symptom could be something that could be at times a creative solution or a possibility of exploring some something that that person who is considering that they have an addiction to porn is already problematizing the relationship to to porn and 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 if they are suffering is that something is not working there it would be more concerning if they would be consuming porn in a, in a way that could 
maybe be bad for themselves. And here I'm trying to to use a sort of construction that will not impose my model of what's good for the other person, but rather that if they are in pain and if they are unhappy, I take that as a good measure that it's not working for them. And then they could eventually end up consulting with an analyst, you, me, or someone else. And that that will probably, that there is always, I think, the, the, the capacity to, something will escape. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a very hopeful idea. That the that symptoms are not necessarily bad dysfunctions, could be productive ones. Yeah, it sounds yes. like it. I mean, and I appreciate the hopefulness of it all. It sounds like you trust humans to develop and to progress and to struggle and, and that all of that ultimately ends up with a lot of hope. Yeah, I wouldn't go, I think I'm a constrained optimist. Right? Uh-huh. I'm not too optimistic. I was told once by a friend that if you are pessimistic, you can become a better politician. But maybe I don't need to to have political aspirations, so I could be optimistic. Yes, <laughs> be. Maybe, maybe. Why not? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I wanted to just push the, the porn is about to to change into these kind of realistic sex bots. I've heard that they're sort of in development or sex toys that are more interactive than ever before that can remember what you like, can talk to you, can do all these kinds of things. Um, and virtual reality, of course where people will be in virtual environments and will experience things together that they can act out in fantasy. And I'm wondering if you think any of that might be problematic or uniquely perverse in some kind of way. Yeah, I don't know yet. We need to see how that can be made use of. What I'm I'm thinking at times is uh, not so much the, the object in itself or how it may be used when we were and then I, I recall an example of the, the discussion of perversion by the psychoanalyst Danny Nobus, and he was saying, well, if uh, uh, two sexual partners may use a, a, a feather to arouse each other, that's fine. But then if they need the whole bird, then it's a perversion. Or where do you draw the line? Is it uh, just the feathers or is the drumstick? Uh, they're becoming, I mean, it's very, very hard to draw the line. And and there, again, I would trust, I think when you, when you are, Dealing with the the clinical practice, I think the best uh, qualified person to to diagnose or 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 decide whether or not it's a perversion or not is the person themselves. So, is how how those technologies will be being made use of. It's interesting. That's kind of similar to a Winnicottian idea, like the use uh-huh. of an object, yes. right? Or exactly, exactly. Because I was thinking, for instance, the in the, I think it was in Japan that. They had made studies in retirement homes that they were giving dolls that look like babies to elderly people and apparently had a very, very positive effects. They would relate to this piece of plastic that maybe for somebody who may enjoy having sex with a sex doll is not too far removed. And so is, is it the object? Is it how it is used? It is maybe what? what it produces as a result, it's, a, it's hard to predict. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so simple. Exactly. Hmm. I'm thinking about all of your writing about trans phenomena, gender expansiveness, and I'm just thinking about race as well. 
And I'm wondering about what you think about porn and its influence on our racialized understandings of sexuality or our gendered understandings of sexuality. In some ways, porn promotes some of the tropes. It might also deconstruct and offer a real opening for lots of different kinds of people, different kinds of bodies, different kinds of subversive ways of thinking about sexuality, gender, and race. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, my tentative answer would be that maybe we need to pluralize porn. There are different types of porns. There are different brands. There, and, and, and some people, for instance, defend the possibility of feminist porn. Others would say that certain type of porn could perpetuate exploitation and, and really oppression of women and, and some even... We don't know, you mentioned earlier on the issue of consent, how how much consent is at play in in the parties involved in the production of uh, of porn. So maybe we need to pluralize and and then uh, say what kind of porn is uh, empowering and and which what kind of porn is not. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm thinking about all of the ways in which the history of psychoanalysis has has included um, larger social or group uh, interventions as well, not just indiv- working with individuals in the clinic. And I'm thinking about what it would mean to have a dialogue with the porn industry as psychoanalysts. What would be what would be possible there? What what you know could we serve a role in helping them think about the porns, the various the various kinds of ways in which they might have unintended or unconscious dynamics with society or with uh, within their their own teams as they develop what they develop and, and, and put it out in the world. What do you think? Yeah, maybe indeed we could also yeah, open up the possibility for uh, maybe, uh, and I'm not a specialist in porn, so I don't know enough. <laughs> it's Okay. <laughs> I I'm not not sure. Would you have any idea of how psychoanalysis could contribute? I don't know. I've just been thinking about all the ways in which we think. I mean, you're thinking about the use of an object, and I think they think about profitability, of course, or you know, number of clicks and and so on. Which maybe they're not interested then in having a conversation with us. I'm not sure, but it seems to me that porn or porns, as you put it, could shape our thinking and our sexual behavior and our relationships with each other without us really knowing until we develop a symptom, right? And then we start to think about it and and come to seek some help or or do something with it. In that place where it's being shaped and we haven't yet really come to engage, oh, I have a symptom here, I'm going to approach somebody um, and get some help. I wonder if it would be helpful to speak to the porn industry about whether, or the technology industry, frankly, about the unintended consequences that maybe they're not so happy that they're creating either. I don't know. Maybe they have a symptom in mind. Like maybe they feel badly about their work. I have certainly heard of tech people who have a great deal of remorse that they're helping to foster a more disembodied, disengaged social structure. Yeah, that I, I would wonder what the point of entry would be because it reminds me of something very interesting was Indeed, was not a pornography, but was a sort of a unrestrained voyeurism in, I think it was Big Big Brother, one of those reality shows that the camera was following the participants everywhere. 
and uh, and nobody seemed to experience any kind of shame. Not the participants, the the audience at large, but the technicians were feeling bad going with the camera and 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 filming people while they were in the bathroom. They felt like no, no, no. That was they could film them having sex, but not in the bathroom. That was a, there was a place that was experienced as off limit. And and then I think it's it's uh, interesting to see well what what the point of entry would be because in a way those who felt that there was a limit that constrained them were those behind the the camera or editing the 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 the, the technical team the ones who were making the show happen and and they experienced a sense of a. Uh, shame of modesty of, of of trying to preserve something at the order of intimacy because what, what occurs to me in our conversation is that maybe what may be lost in this uh, availability and accessibility would be the the domain or the realm of intimacy and that may be something quite big to sacrifice and it would be interesting to see where where the point of entry would be or or for whom this would create a symptom clearly those who are profiting will not want to change anything because they, their business is blooming and there but there would be to, to talk about maybe the the technical team that feel, they feel bad about what they're doing and why, why do they feel bad why, why is this problematic for them I think that's actually really interesting. I think there's, um, you know, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there are lots of tech executives and and engineers and, you know, folks who work on, you know, all different kind of dating sites and, you know, Uber and everywhere else. They work on all the different technical technical things. And the, the people who seem to have the biggest symptoms are the ones who are at the mid-level, who are frustrated because they aren't really experiencing tons of benefits of profitability. And so they have space to question, what am I doing here? I'm not even getting the benefits. And then the people who retire early, I've noticed a, a few tech executives who have retired, um, made a lot of money and no longer have to work. And then they start asking themselves questions, you know, ethical questions and, you know, wow, I made all this money doing this thing that actually maybe harms people or that maybe isn't so good after all. And those people seem to develop symptoms as well. And so I think it's it's people at different stages of their career or people who are relating to the questions. You're right. I mean, those cameramen are are the ones who are faced with having to actually be the voyeur, right? Or be the the agent of gathering the data right there. So that's a little bit different role than somebody who's sitting in the marketing department creating bills or whatever. Mm-hmm. But also that they can abide by a certain limit. They may feel, on, if we go back to the, the example of this reality TV show, that they felt that, that there was a certain limit that could not be traversed, that they, they needed to turn off the camera when the participants were going to the bathroom, that, that there was a certain a certain boundary that did not need to be crossed, and, and that in a way, because that's the, the the interesting idea when in psychoanalysis uh, we think of uh, of what term in, and going back to to the definition of what is perversion would be a way of relating to castration, call it a limit, uh, in a way of do we accept it, do we defy it, or we reject it altogether. 
and and that maybe perversion would be the the structure that is always define that limit, uh, but not because they are in a different uh, moral standing, but because it's a structure that uh, as a solution to facing the law, it needs to find the law through transgression. And it's interesting that maybe if if we think that there is uh, something going on in terms of the uses of, of technology, perhaps we will find the limit we will find the law by transgressing it. Like let's say we 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 find the law in say, an everyday life. Anyone who is speeding in the highway and then gets a ticket, <laughs> then realizes there was the law and I should not have done it. So that kind of reinstating a limit by transgressions. What's interesting right now, though, is we don't have so many limits on technology. I mean, I think these sex bots and so on, there is no ethical limit or anything. People can create virtual realities where there's rape scenes or where there's snuff porn or whatever else. So there's so far that has not been regulated, which I wonder, you know, have we created a monster because there are no limits yet because we haven't yet developed the limits and maybe the limit will come in the form of symptoms. Yeah, we, I, I, that I, I think for sure. But probably also, once this uh, established, I imagine that there will be some legislation to to regulate it, because also these are are, are new forms of technology that were not existing yet. So maybe they will be, they will become regulated. What's your impression? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there will. I think in Europe, there's already some more regulation than there is in the United States. And I think the same is probably true in other countries. So I, I would anticipate that for sure. But I think it will uh, it will be difficult because there's, you know, tech executives have a lot of power here and they have a lot of money to lobby. So it's going to be it's going to be one of the one of the interesting legal things in our times, I imagine. So. You've written extensively. You have such interesting books. You're writing a, a current piece of work that takes as a point of departure the existential problems of trans-identified analysands who view their gender as a life-or-death situation and experience the transition as a form of survival. And it analyzes various experiences of embodiment, showing how these experiences modify the construction of identity at the sexual, social, and racial levels. I'm wondering if this project has anything to do with tech in terms of disembodiment or embodiment, you know, or if there's anything you can you can tell us about the project that you're working on or anything you'd like to say about what we've been talking about today. Sure, thank you. Yes, it's a, it, again, I have this, uh, I feel very fortunate being a clinician that the the clinical encounter functions like a, like a window. Maybe we were talking earlier about we cannot make predictions, but at times we get, to see things before we read about them on on the news or we we, we show up on the newspaper that, that there is a certain anticipation of uh, social manifestations in the clinical practice and one big lesson that i learned working with transidentify analysis when uh, is something i hear a lot in my practice when somebody says if I would not have transition, I would have killed myself. What I discovered, and, and, and I initially was too focused on issues of gender and sexuality, that behind an issue of gender and sexuality, there is a question of life and death. And 
and and how in a society and especially in the US where we are compelled to declare an identity in order to exist in society very early on in life when as a child in elementary school a child has to declare an identity to find a spot in the lunchroom to sit, what table to sit, what, what group to friend of friends will accept them. They have to declare an identity. And in I, I put together what I learned from the clinical practice with the meditation on how we are constantly expected to declare an identity as if identity would be something fixed. And what I, I learned in the practice is that learn, identity works more like a question mark. And that maybe we would be better off, and, and, and I call it a sort of ecology of being, if identity would be more of a doing that would change and fluctuate. And if we look at our lives, and, and and that's often the, the experience one has looking at all photographs of oneself that we really don't recognize ourselves at times. Or, 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 or look, we have a familiar with a person in the photo, but I'm not sure that or if we look back in time, the things we maybe we liked 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we, we are constantly changing and add a sense of identity, even though... We believe with illusion that is something stable and and unmovable. It's all the time a sort of compromise answer, and it's all the time being a, a question mark reinterpreted. And and that in fact, that when we say who we are, even when we have an illusion that is something very solid and and stable, is always uh, fluctuating. The same thing that we experience with we we believe that. The earth is very stable and, and we forget that it's constantly in motion, that the succession of day and night is because the earth is rotating, that we we tend to believe that we are always stable and we are who we are and we can declare it with certainty, when in fact it's a constant redoing, doing and undoing. And this experience for somebody who may have moved from one gender to another or have chosen to live between genders, which is for many a big challenge in a society that tends to expect people to declare one or other gender, male or female. Some people may live in, in between. How uh, that, that experience in a way makes more evident the fact that our sexual identity the gender we we may decide is the one that corresponds to our being. That when when those correspond, with those coincide, in fact, that is only the production of a fiction. And as we know, as psychoanalysts, fictions uh, have the effect of truth. So at times, this this believe that we know who we are is a fiction and it's a fiction that has effects and gives an illusion of stability that in fact is a result of a lot of redoing, undoing and, and construction. Wow. Wow. It sounds like a really interesting book, um, especially, you know, just to reveal the, the, the issue of existence beneath it. It's so broadly applicable to everyone, not just trans folks. Exactly. And how, in a way, we need to, perhaps we will be living in a more ecological way if we 
could see identities as more mobile that because if we think of folks who are uh, marginalized because of their race or because of their gender or because of their sexuality, the possibility of becoming more aware that these are construction and that they are mobile could maybe grant a little bit of freedom. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we've been discussing today? No. Is there any other thing you would like us to, to revisit? No, I think I think this has been uh, very, very full, very full and wonderful. So we've been speaking with Dr. Patricia Gerovici. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology and the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Dr. Isabel Millar on AI, desire, and sexuality. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.